quote, first they killed my mother, then they killed my father, then they killed my auntie, then they put my arm on the ground and, and the man took the cutlass and chopped it once. He chopped it again and the second time my arm fell off. He told me to find Ahmad Dajan Kaba and Kaba would give me a new arm." End quote. This quote comes from an 80-year-old Sierra Leonean girl as she details what the Revolutionary United Front, or RUF, did to her in the name of diamonds and the untold riches they represented. Welcome to Society of Strife. This week, we'll be looking at the tiny West African nation of Sierra Leone. Throughout the 1990s, a war in Sierra Leone grew into a tragedy of major humanitarian, political, and historical proportions. The conflict was characterized by banditry and horrific brutality, wreaked primarily on civilians. It is recorded that 75,000 people, of whom 92% were civilians, lost their lives, but the number is much higher, going as far up as 200,000, according to some experts. Rebel butchery left thousands of women, men and children without hands and feet, disfigured physically and psychologically for the rest of their lives. Children were forced into sexual slavery and some were forced into becoming child soldiers after being made into addicts capable of horrifying brutality. At different times during the war, as many as half of Sierra Leone citizens became displaced or were refugees. Schools, hospitals, government services and commerce ground to a halt in all but the largest town centers. Mineral resources which should have been available for development were instead used to finance war, robbing the potential beneficiaries and an entire generation of children of their lives and livelihoods, and putting Sierra Leone dead last on the United Nations Human Development Index. If you like this show, please give us a 5-star review on Apple Podcasts slash iTunes. And if you like it so, so much that you can't help but want to support it, please do so on buymeacoffee.com slash strife and patreon.com slash strife. Additionally, you can follow the show on Instagram at Society of Strife Podcast and Twitter at Society of Strife. New episodes come out every Friday. Now, let's talk about the Diamonds of Sierra Leone. Africa's first modern state, Sierra Leone was founded by black Nova Scotians who had been freed slaves over 200 years ago. Based on that alone, one would expect Sierra Leone to become a successful country, but a weak post-independence democracy was subverted in the 1960s and 70s by corruption and despotism. Economic decline and military rule followed, and it quickly spiraled down into a banana republic. Among the people who brought down the country was Fode Sanko. Born on the 17th of October 1937, Fode Sebana Sanko was the son of a farmer. He later attended primary and secondary school in Magburaka, Tonkolili District, Sierra Leone. 
After a series of odd jobs, Sanko enlisted in the Sierra Leone Army in 1956. He undertook training in Nigeria and the United Kingdom. In 1971, after attaining the rank of corporal, he was kicked out of the army and imprisoned for seven years for taking part in a mutiny. Upon his release, he worked as an itinerant photographer in the south and east of Sierra Leone, eventually coming into contact with young radicals. After a stint in Benghazi, learning the arts of revolutionary warfare from teachers assigned by Muammar Gaddafi, Sanko created the Revolutionary Front, or RUF, and spent most of the 1990s leading an army of drug-addled killers who murdered and mutilated women, men, and children across Sierra Leone, the same people he had claimed to want to liberate. The second person was the infamous Charles Taylor, a Liberian warlord who we shall look at more closely in the coming Blood Diamonds episodes. Charles Taylor financed the early stages of his own lust of power by selling timber, but diamonds soon proved more lucrative. The only reason I'm mentioning him in this episode instead of his own episode on Liberia is because he backed Sanko's RUF by giving it a Liberian base, weapons, and an outlet for whatever it could steal in Sierra Leone. The third person in this mess was Siaka Stevens, the man who had been Prime Minister before the rise of Sanko and the RUF. Siaka Probin Stevens was born on 24th August 1905 in Moyamba district in the southern province of British Sierra Leone. Stevens completed his primary education in Freetown, Sierra Leone, and completed secondary school at the Albert Academy in Freetown before joining the Sierra Leone police force. After a series of blue-collar jobs, Siaka went on to become Sierra Leone's first president after forming a political party in the early 1960s, the All People's Congress. In 1985, after 17 years of mismanagement, corruption, and brutality, he retired, thus setting the stage for the country's downfall. It's at this point in the story that we talk about the actual perpetrators of Sierra Leone's downfall and the people behind its bloody affair with diamonds, the British. The British settled in Sierra Leone shortly after they abolished slavery in 1807, but they weren't happy with it. The only reason they kept it was because they had returned newly freed Africans who had nowhere else to go. In fact, Until the discovery of diamonds in the 1930s, the colony was a drain on the British exchequer. For this reason, development spending was kept to a minimum and control over the interior was manifested by a manipulative power and tax sharing arrangement with local chiefs. As late as 1921, there were only five colonial administrators living beyond the Freetown area. In Kono district, where the first diamonds were discovered there were no colonial investments in health education or other developmental infrastructure until the waning days of the british colonial administration until the end of the 19th century the commercial and administrative life of the more robust freetown colony was dominated by creoles the creoles were anglicized descendants 
anglicized descendants of the freed Africans who had returned to Africa in the early 1800s from North America and Britain. In an effort to reduce the growing influence of this potentially disruptive political class as the interior was beginning to open up, the colonial government sought alternatives. One of said alternatives was greater empowerment of upcountry chiefs. Another was the encouragement of an alternative political class. This was in the form of Lebanese immigrants who had fled the growing poverty of the collapsing Ottoman Empire. The first immigrants arrived in Freetown in 1893 and by the 1900s had grown to 41. The Lebanese proved to be astute entrepreneurs and as their numbers grew, they quickly eclipsed the Creole commercial class, moving up country wherever opportunity presented itself. With the construction of a narrow gauge railway and feeder roads, the Lebanese became major investors, investors in the transportation business, which provided greater opportunities for commerce and provided eventual control of the retail and produce trades. The first Lebanese diamond trader arrived in Kono district shortly after diamonds were discovered in 1930, two years before the appointment of a colonial officer and well ahead of the Sierra Leone Selection Trust, or SLST, which later started mining the diamonds. In minimizing direct control over the country, the British had, in effect, created the appearance of national infrastructure without investing large sums. As a result, the entire government was balanced on a knife's edge. Police, courts, army, and civil servants were more prominent in Freetown than elsewhere, growing weaker the further away they were from the capital city. Where diamonds were concerned, a power clash was brewing. In 1935, the colonial government gave SLST, a subsidiary of the Consolidated African Selection Trust and part of the Selection Trust Limited Mining Empire, exclusive prospecting and mining rights over the entire country for a period of 99 years. In return, the company was to pay income tax at the rate of 27% on its profits, an amount later increased to 45%. At the beginning, corporate control over the diamond fields was a simple matter, and in the immediate post-war period, the system seemed to work well. Between 1948 and 1952, SLST paid over 3 million pounds in taxes, making it the pride of the colonial government. However, there was a problem. The Kono diamonds and those later found south at the Tongo field were mainly alluvial. As I said last episode, alluvial diamonds are found by way of panning, unlike Kimberley diamonds which have to be mined from deep underground. So, the problem that the SLST ran into was theft. This was because mining could be done without the requirement of expensive and complicated machinery. Lebanese traders rapidly assumed the role of middlemen, moving illicitly mined diamonds out of the country in dozens of ways, but mostly through Monrovia, the capital of Liberia. By the early 1950s, more and more illicit miners were moving into Kono, leading to a breakdown in law and order and threatening the entire SLST operation. 
Police campaigns to expel these illegal miners from the region had little success, and by 1956, there were an estimated 75,000 illicit miners in Kono. It's for this reason that De Beers hired Sir Percy Silito, a man with a very unfortunate name, to create the International Diamond Security Organization, an organization whose purpose was changing post-war colonial currency regulations, allowing De Beers to offer better prices in hard currency in Sierra Leone. This was seen as a last-ditch effort to stem the flow of smuggled diamonds, estimated to be as much as half the colony's entire annual output. As I said last week, the beers needed to control the global price of diamonds, and so they always tried to stop diamond smuggling, because there was always the possibility of diamonds flooding the market. For a while, it worked, but other factors also contributed to its success. The first of those factors was the cutting of SLST's lease to a realistic 450 square miles instead of the entire country. The second was the creation of an alluvial mining scheme which gave indigenous miners access to diamonds in the rest of the country. After Sierra Leone gained independence in 1961, new issues developed. Siaka Stevens Minister of Mines during the colonial twilight had supported corporate control over the diamond industry. Now in charge of his own opposition party, he created a populist platform agitating against foreign ownership of the principal diamond resource, advocating a social welfare state, and whipping up popular sentiment against SLST. In 1968, seven years after independence, he finally gained the prime ministership and immediately started plotting ways to keep the job forever. Diamonds, of course, were part of the plan. At this point in the story, we have to talk about a man named Hene Shamel. Hene Shamel was part of a wealthy Shiite clan from South Lebanon. Since the 1930s, the Shamels had been heavily involved in gold mining and later in diamond mining and smuggling. Shamel had been an ally of Stevens early in his political career, but by 1969, they were no longer friends. In November of that year, a daylight robbery at Hastings Airport near Freetown saw $3 million in SLST diamonds disappear in less than 10 minutes. Shamel was arrested and charged with the crime, but the evidence against him was weak, and in 1970, a judge acquitted him. It was later reported that Stevens had him deported on the advice of his new Afro-Lebanese associate, Jamil Sahid Mohammed. Jamil, as he was known, was allegedly nothing more than a petty criminal, having spent six months in jail in 1959 for illegal possession of a diamond. He now began to work with Stevens to take control of the diamond industry. In 1971, Stevens created the National Diamond Mining Company, taking over 51% of SLST's shares and thus nationalizing the company. Jamil bought 12% of the government shares and SLST's control and its shipments of diamonds began to slip precipitously. In 1984, 
a company controlled by Jamil, bought the remaining shares of SLST, and it became quite obvious that the entire company was now in the hands of two of the country's biggest crooks. Official diamond exports fell from a high of over 2 million carats in 1970 to just over 48,000 in 1988. In the years before his retirement in 1985, Siaka Stevens disbanded the judiciary, corrupted the army, and destroyed the police force. This wasn't difficult for him to do because, as we said earlier, these institutions had never been strong to begin with. In their place, he created a new security apparatus that was designed to protect him and his investments rather than the country. Stevens also turned Sierra Leone into a one-party state, made himself executive president, and then beat the political opposition into submission. Once he had sidelined the SLST, the Lebanese became increasingly involved in the diamond trade, or what was left of it, because most, most of it went through him and his cronies. From the late 1970s to the early 1990s, Lebanon's civil war played itself out in a microcosm in Sierra Leone. Because the various Lebanese militia needed assistance, Sierra Leone's diamonds came into play as a donor base, an informal tax on behalf of one faction or another. This was of great interest to Israel, not least because part of the Sierra Leonean Shiite community actively supported the AMAL faction, which on one hand fought against Israel's greatest enemy, Hezbollah, and on the other hand was Syria's main ally against Israel. It wasn't lost on Israel that the leader of AMAL, Nabi Berry, had been born in Sierra Leone and was a friend of Jamil, the most influential man in the country's diamond business. It was largely through Berry that Iran became interested in Sierra Leone, building a large cultural center in Freetown and making the country its main base in West Africa. This made Israel even more agitated. Israel had been trying, albeit unsuccessfully, to restore ties with Sierra Leone, which had broken during the Arab-Israeli War of 1967. In a dramatic move, Jamil persuaded Stephen's successor, Joseph Momo, to invite then-Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat for a state visit to Freetown in 1986. While in Freetown, Arafat offered several million dollars to Momo in exchange for a training base of his PLO fighters, an offer which Momo, under advisement from his aides, turned down. Because of this, Jamil lost the power he had in the Middle East and also lost favor with Joseph Momo. Lobbyists began prodding Momo towards stronger ties with Israel and an end to Lebanese dominance. In 1987, Momo announced that he had foiled a coup plot involving Jamil, his own vice president, Francis Mina, and a few lower-ranking soldiers and police. Mina was tried for treason. He was later found guilty and hanged. Jamil, who, to his luck, had been out of the country at the time, remained in self-exile for the duration of Momo's tempestuous regime. The foiled coup allowed Momo to create his own partnerships, 
Israel, long anxious to get the Lebanese away from Sierra Leone's diamond wealth, was an obvious alternative. One of the first investors to arrive was Russian-born Shabtai Kalmanovich and his Israeli-based enterprise, the Liat Construction and Finance Company. Liat, however, was a disappointment. Most of its contracts were with the government and many of its projects, though announced to the lot of fanfare, never got started. This was because Kalmanovich's main interest lay in diamonds and perhaps drugs. Among other things, Kalmanovich set up a diamond buying office in Freetown. At first, the endeavor seemed to benefit the diamond industry, and exports rose by a staggering 280% in late 1987. However, the illegal production and exports did not decrease accordingly. This left exports all over Africa baffled. The answer came soon after it was discovered that Kalmanovich was using Sierra Leone to circumvent United Nations weapons, diamonds, and gold embargoes in South Africa. While in Sierra Leone, Kalmanovich had also brought in other money launderers, drug traffickers, and arms dealers, all scrambling to gain access to the country's diamond wealth. By 1991, Momo was desperately seeking new foreign farms to generate revenue in the climate of corruption and economic freefall over which he presided. Unfortunately for him, the RUF war began that year and from the outset, the rebels attempted to cut Momo off from the Kono diamond fields. In April 1992, he was overthrown in a military coup. Led by 27-year-old army captain Valentine Strasser, the National Provisional Ruling Council, or NPRC, came to power on a promise to end corruption. Unfortunately, Strasser's arrival simply promised more looting of the country's diamond resources. Fode Sanko began his war on Sierra Leone in March 1991, but as the RUF interest in diamonds came into focus, Sanko remained an enigma. Few knew exactly what he looked like, and nobody knew exactly what he wanted, aside from power. Vague tales about fighting for justice and democracy emerged from the forest with released captives, and in 1996, an RUF pamphlet appeared. It was titled Footpaths to Democracy, and in it, the RUF talked about its struggle against the, quote, raping of the countryside to feed the greed and caprice of the Freetown elite and their masters abroad, end quote. It also spoke of a, quote, liberation theology consistent with our pride in ourselves as Africans, end quote. British anthropologist Paul Richards saw the RUF in 1996 as a, quote-unquote, coherent movement populated to a large extent by youngsters whose, quote, political project cannot be ignored, end quote. According to him, the RUF was a response to a crisis of modernity and a breakdown in traditional patrimonial relationships. Most Sierra Leoneans saw it differently. Social historian Ibrahim Abdallah 
charted the development of two streams of young men who eventually converged into the RUF leadership. The first were violent thugs, many of whom had learned their trade doing dirty work for Stevens, Momo, and other politicians for whom violence was the solution to every problem. And the second was a group of self-styled, quote-unquote, radical students at Fura Bay College who schooled themselves in their opposition to Siaka Stevens and his successor by listening to Bob Marley and Peter Tosh, smoking weed and reading the Juche idea of Kim Il-sung, the father to Little Rocketman and the Green Book of Muammar Gaddafi. Several of those students were sponsored to attend annual Green Book celebrations in Libya, traveling there and later returning to recruit others. In all, about 48 Sierra Leoneans traveled to the, in to the training camps at Benghazi for training in insurgency tactics. Most were students, some were unemployed youth, and one was a 50-year-old man who had spent seven years in prison for his role in a 1971 coup plot. That man was ex-corporal Fode Sebana Sanko. It is said that Sanko first met Charles Taylor at Gaddafi's World Revolutionary Headquarters, and this is hardly surprising because Gaddafi recruited a gallery of such types during the 1980s. He provided training and money to Loro Kabila, fighting against Mobutu Seseko in the Congo. He provided support to Blaise Compaore, a man who had murdered his closest friend before taking his job as president of Burkina Faso. He gave training and support to Kukoi Samba Samyang, who then attempted a coup in the Gambia, and he sent 600 troops in a vain effort to support Ugandan dictator Idi Amin. Whatever ideology the RUF may have had when it started, it vanished as soon as Sanko put his revolution into practice. The few intellectuals who had returned to West Africa from Libya with him were summarily executed, eliminating any perceived challenge to his power and authority. Charles Taylor, who had been using young Sierra Leoneans in his Liberian war at the time, turned some of these and some of his own fighters over to Fode Sanko for his initial efforts. After that, the RUF simply quote-unquote recruited its own fighters inside Sierra Leone, kidnapping children and forcing them to commit atrocities against their own families and villages just to make sure that they could never go home again. The children were also given drugs and socialized into a culture of violence and murder. A mixture of gunpowder and cocaine, known as brown-brown, was rubbed onto their foreheads and wounds giving them wild thoughts, including the idea that they were immune to gunfire, and also causing hallucinations, making them see those that they killed as some sort of monster. They were given red tablets and white tablets, and crack, which they called blue boots, although I have no idea why. They were also injected with quote-unquote medicine, which was at times cocaine or heroin, depending on what the older rebels had at hand on that particular day. Soon, they were no longer quote-unquote youngsters, 
they were child soldiers, a term which does not adequately convey a sense of the monsters they had become. Girls were taken too, to become servants and sex slaves. Unlike most rebel movements, no matter how violent, the RUF had no real ideology beyond a desire for power. It had no ethnic grievance or following. Land was not an issue, nor was religion. In other words, it was committing violence for the sake of violence, and maybe power, if it ever came along. By 1995, the RUF were in firm control of the diamond fields of Kono District and Tongo Field. Diamonds had become a central bank for the RUF, and mining was carried out through a system of slavery and forced labor. Diggers were permitted to share in what they found, but were closely watched by armed RUF guards, and the better diamonds were always seized. The diamonds were then transported to RUF headquarters in Buedu, near the Liberian border, from which they were taken to Monrovia. Arms, brokered by Charles Taylor, through a network of international criminals, including infamous Victor Booth, were driven and sometimes airlifted back to the RUF. In short, it was a diamonds for weapons scheme, just like the one we heard about last week in the Angolan episode. Despite a UN arms embargo, Taylor was able to procure weapons from a variety of sources. Some came from his old mentor, Gaddafi. Some were supplied by Victor Bood, and still others came from Leonid Minin, who had become an international thug after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union, just like Victor Boot. Back in Sierra Leone, the dying government of Valentine Strasser made a deal with one of the small mining companies that had arrived at the end of Joseph Momo's failed Israeli experiment. The company, Diamond Works, was, in 1995, a company incorporated in Canada and listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange with a head office in Vancouver, but it was managed from London with its operational headquarters in Johannesburg. To me, that sounds like a Ponzi scheme. Its Vancouver presence gave it access to the Canadian Stock Exchange where it allegedly spent more time mining for shareholders rather than diamonds. Now, this is where the story gets really creepy. You see, Diamond Works owned a company called Branch Energy, which in turn had a close relationship with another company named, ambiguously, as executive outcomes. As much as it sounds like a PR firm, in reality, executive outcomes was a private South African military firm. Long story short, Branch Energy introduced Strasser to executive outcomes founder, Eben Barlow, who, not long after the meeting, imported 200 mercenaries, air support, and some sophisticated communication equipment. Within a week, the tide of the war shifted. The RUF were pushed from Freetown, and in a month, they had cleared the diamond fields that the RUF had taken over, scattering them in the process. A few weeks later, Branch Energy and its company, Diamond Works, 
were given a 25-year lease on diamond concessions in Kono. Instead of solving their problems, that lease created a massive problem for Branch Energy because shortly after it was issued, Branch Energy was taken to court and accused of a, of a variety of crimes, including human rights violations. Branch Energy denied these accusations and denied any corporate connections between themselves and executive outcomes. Human rights organizations, political scientists, ethicists, and many Western governments were shocked at the delegation of sovereign responsibilities to mercenaries and what looked like a protection racket, namely mining leases for body bags. Whether or not these body bags contained the bodies of RUF rebels or villagers was another matter entirely. The fact that these mercenaries were white and also self-serving did not escape the gaze of the Sierra Leonean media who went as far as to write giant headlines on their newspapers which read, quote, executive outcomes must go, end quote. 1996 was a pivotal year for Sierra Leone. The military, under pressure from the public and donor agencies to hold elections, finally gave in. Elections were held in March and a former UN official, Ahmad Tejan Kaba, was elected president. Kaba took over peace negotiations that had already begun with the RUF in Abidjan, Nigeria, and in November, a peace accord was signed. As part of the deal, executive outcomes was handed its marching orders. Six months later, soldiers raided Freetown's notorious Padamba Road prison and released 600 inmates. Among them was Major Johnny Paul Koroma, who, taking advantage of his release, quickly declared himself head of state. Tejan Kaba and his government was forced to flee to Conakry in neighboring Guinea, and Koroma set about creating a coalition government with the RUF. Fode, who was caught unawares by the coup as he had been visiting Nigeria when it happened, quickly found himself in a jail thanks to Nigerian authorities. In the coming months, however, Fode Sanko would thank his lucky stars because he wasn't in Sierra Leone because the RUF, together with Johnny Paul Koroma's Armed Forces Ruling Council, or AFRC, would dispel any remaining doubts about their nature. For six months, the AFRC and the RUF presided over a systematic reign of terror. Judges, journalists, and members of Kaba's parliament were tortured and murdered. Looting and rape became commonplace. Government offices ceased to function, banks remained closed, and normal trade activities ground to a halt. As a result, people starved. Among his twisted ideas, Karoma appointed an RUF hooligan named Sam Bokhari as, quote, chief of defense staff, end quote, whatever that means. Sam Bokhari, who liked to be referred to as Mosquito, was a former diamond digger, hairdresser, and disco dancer. In his spare time, however, Bokhari moonlighted as a vicious murderer and for the Sanko's right-hand man. Interviewed by Steve Cole of the Washington Post in 2000, 
Some came across as unbalanced, narcissistic, and dangerous. Quote, I am a good-looking man, he said. I like good living. He then prattled on about the civil war for some time and then said, quote, you know, I really admire myself, end quote. Before I continue, let me just clarify something. Sambokari is not a good-looking man. Holy shite! You strifers should see his pictures. I'll see if I can find some without crazy copyright tags and upload them on Instagram. In February 1998, ECOMOG, or the Economic Community of West African States Monitoring Group, an organization I've never heard of until now, summoned the strength to force the AFRC and the RUF to abandon the city. President Kaba returned and the AFRC dissolved, but the RUF did not. Isa Sise, one of the RUF commanders, escorted Johnny Paul Koroma to the relative safety of Baidu and was shocked to discover that Koroma had been concealing a bag of diamonds to help pave his way to a better life elsewhere. Johnny Paul was, in fact, lucky to get away with his life because the RUF murdered diggers for simply looking sideways at a diamond. Because this story is very long, graphic, and epically convoluted, I'm afraid we'll have to end there. But don't worry, I'll be back next week for the conclusion, as we find out if the victims finally got justice for the crimes committed against them, and if the perpetrators finally got what was coming to them. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked my telling of this story and others on Society of Strife, please give the show a 5-star review on Apple Podcasts slash iTunes. If you wish to support the show, because believe me, we need some supporters, please do so on buymeacoffee.com slash societyofstrife and patreon.com slash societyofstrife. Until next week, it's been my pleasure. Goodbye and stay safe.